All right, hey, open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, because we're working through it. We're going through it verse by verse, and we're here at the, uh, in chapter 2, and we're in the middle of chapter 2. We kind of got split in half last, uh, last week. We were going to try, or at least I was going to try to get through chapter 1, or chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and we split it, and we got to chapter 4. And uh, I want to start by, as you're turning there, saying it's hard to overstate, I think, the importance of the topic that we're going to address this morning. Um, It's hard to overstate the importance and even the urgency of the topic that the Apostle Paul addresses this morning. To be honest, as I was preparing um, for this text, in my kind of cursory study to get started, I'm not sure I understood where it would take me and not sure I fully understood the implications that would be unveiled as I dug into the text. I didn't understand maybe perhaps the implications and for our own church and our own cultural moment right now. But I'm more and more convinced as I've looked at this text at how significant and urgent is the theme that he brings up here in this call to prayer. As you recall last week, he invites us to pray. In chapter 2, verse 1, he's urging prayer for all people, a type of evangelistic corporate prayer. We are called to pray in that way. And the rest of the verses from basically 3 on to verse 7, he is kind of giving reasons For why we ought to pray as a church the way he calls us to pray. He's giving us motivation. Now, as a way of thinking about the urgency of this this theme here, uh, many doctors, I'll just to illustrate, many doctors have spoken in the medical field of a disease they call a silent killer. The silent killer. It's one of those diseases that will often go undetected for a long time, uh, it will be in the body, in the body it doesn't have too many um, symptoms and you won't really notice that you have it until finally when it's detected, it's too late. They call it a silent killer. It, it sadly takes the lives of thousands of people every year and the, the reason it's so devastating is because often it's there, it's treatable, but it's not recognized. And if only someone would pointed out if it would be recognized it could be dealt with and it could be treated and it could be done with and and health could be restored but often it goes untreated and undetected and so people die from this disease thousands every year in what would and should be a treatable disease well to use that analogy I think there's a silent killer a spiritual silent killer that plagues many churches. doesn't always result in physical death, but it can result in the death of evangelistic fervor. It can result in the death of mission in a church. It can result in the death of evangelistic prayer, uh, prayer for the nations and prayer for the neighborhoods that we're in. Uh, A spiritual killer that can take away our zeal and take away our 
forward thinking and even strategic thinking for how we are to reach our friends and neighbors, it can cause Christians to slide into lethargy. And you might say that this spiritual killer is always lurking at the front door of every church. Always kind of lurking in the shadows. You say, well, what's the killer? The silent killer you could call pluralism. The idea that there are many ways to God. Every religion is kind of true or at least has a seed of truth. Everything, uh, every option, every religion, every worldview has a genuine encounter with the ultimate, whatever that might be. They all lead to truth. Sure, we might all take different roads. We might all be on different paths. But in the end, we're all going the same direction. One may be better than the others, but they're all adequate. They'll all work out in the end. Plurality. Many ways, many paths, many paths to God, many ways to salvation. I wonder if you've noticed it in the world around you in more recent days, the idea that everyone's kind of right and no one really knows for sure the truth. And so we're all just kind of groping in the dark trying to figure out what the truth really is. And so the main thing that we all need to do is just kind of accept everyone else's beliefs this is coming up all over the place in various ways. In 2009, at the president, former President Barack Obama's inaugural address, there was a man who was asked to pray. He was a Christian, an Episcopal bishop of New Hampshire. He stepped into the pulpit to pray, and he began with these words, O oh God of our many understandings, we pray that you will, and he went on to ask for many good things. God of our many understandings. In preparation for the prayer, he was uh, studying many different types of inaugural prayers, and he went back and he had read different Christians who had prayed before the inauguration of different presidents, and he said, quote, he was horrified at how specifically and aggressively Christian they were. And this Christian bishop wanted to change that. You might find that odd that a Christian bishop was not happy with how Christian the prayers were, but his idea was that all other religions need equal opportunity. They're just as valid. They just as much need a place at the table. Well, that's pluralism rearing its head. You might say, well, the church is not really imbibing this way of thinking. You know, the church historically has always taught that Christ is the only way and that truth is absolute and you can know truth through the revealed Word of God. Statistics are saying otherwise. In 2014, uh, Ligonier Ministries, they do this every year, they put out, or every other year I think it is, they put out um, a survey finding. Uh, they, they put out a survey, they collect all the data and they ask a bunch of theological questions and they put it out there as what's the state of theology. And in 2014, they began their survey with this question. The question was there, or sorry, it wasn't a question, it was a statement, and you could either agree or disagree. The statement was, there will be people in heaven who have never heard of Jesus Christ. Now, you might, if you're a Christian and you've been brought up in Sunday school, think, well, that kind of is an obvious question. I've been taught all my life that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. 
But in answer to the question, 40% of Christians, this is not just the general American public, this was Christians in churches, evangelical Christians, 40% agreed with the statement. They agreed that people will be in heaven who have never heard of Jesus. Uh, In addition to that, 20% said they weren't sure where people would go who had never heard of Jesus. This year, just a few weeks ago, another survey was released, and the question was asked, sorry, again, not a question, the statement was made, and you could agree or disagree, the statement was this, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And to that, 57% of professing Christians agreed. So more than half of the Christians who were surveyed said, yes, there are many ways to worship God, and Christianity is a way, but it's not the only way. You might as well, or you just as well could, if you would like, if you prefer, uh, worship God through a different religion like Judaism or like Islam, and you might be on a different road, uh, you might have taken a different, different path, but in the end, we're all worshiping the same God, and we're all being... Um, Uh, we're all children of the same God, and God is receiving our worship in the same way. Christians are believing this. And so this is very much a part of American evangelicalism, this idea that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. That idea is becoming less and less held onto. You might call this a theological crisis. Most Christians are believing that salvation can be found outside of Jesus Christ. Other religions' worship are just as valid as Christian worship. And we would say that this is evidence that pluralism, the idea that many options, many roads, many ways lead to God. It's a silent killer. And what it does when it takes hold of a church or a movement or a Christian is that it guts them of the evangelistic zeal that they ought to have. It throws a wet blanket on the fires of their fervor to reach the lost. It even blunts our prayers to pray for those who need Christ. And what we're going to see here in 1 Timothy, I want to draw now your attention to the text, what Timothy is being told in this text From the Apostle Paul, he's saying, Paul is saying, you must pray. You must pray for all people. You must pray for kings and authorities. You must pray this way because God desires for all people to be saved. And then, he makes this statement in verse 5, where he says, there is four, note that word, four, pointing backwards Reminding us of what he just said, and now he's going to give a reason or a motivation to keep praying evangelistically, praying corporately. He's going to give us a motivation for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You might in your mind be thinking, how in the world is this a motivation for prayer? Especially how in the world is this a motivation for evangelistic prayer? 
And I want to give you three thoughts that Paul, I think, wants us to think about that will, when we think about them, uh, encourage prayer for the lost. Encourage fervent evangelistic prayer, even corporate prayer, as this text is teaching. These doctrines, these truths, when they take root in our mind, in our heart, they cause us to pray. They cause us to long for God to work amongst the people who are not yet saved. And they, that, that, that longing for people to be saved erupts into prayer. And so we're going to have three thoughts that kindle evangelistic fervency. Here's our first thought. Here's our first thought. First, there is only one way to salvation. There's only one way to salvation. In verse 5, we are to pray, 5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The reason that we are called to pray, or one of the reasons that should inform the way we pray and even encourage us to pray, is that there's one God. There's one way to that God, and it's through Jesus Christ. In Paul's mind, the singularity of the entry point into salvation, the one-wayness of Christianity, theologians might say the exclusivity of the gospel or the exclusivity of Christ to Paul, and therefore to us, ought to be kindling for our evangelistic prayers. Because there's only one way, because salvation is found in no one else, we must then pray. Isaiah 46, verse 9, For I am one God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. God is the creator of everyone and everything. He is the one who owns everyone. He fashioned humanity. He fashioned the world. And He alone deserves all the worship and all the admiration and all the praise and all the devotion of His creatures. This one God, who is the only God who exists, has revealed Himself in the Word of God. Now, maybe you've heard this. This has kind of been a popular analogy um, that's, that's been around for a while. I don't even know where it first was developed or who thought of it, but it's a clever one. And it's the analogy of the blind men and the elephant. You've probably heard this before. Uh, you got the, the three men that are blind and they're feeling an elephant and one guy's got the tail and then he says, oh, I know what an elephant is. It, it's like a rope. He's holding on the tail. And the other blind guy is leaning up against the, the broad side of the elephant, and he says, oh, I know what an elephant is. It's not like a rope. You're totally wrong. It's more like a wall. Look, it's, it's like this. Well, he wouldn't say look because he's blind. Um, the, other, the other guy is holding on to the leg, and he's going, no, it's, it's not like a rope. It's not like a wall. It's more like a tree trunk. And he's holding on. It's like a tree trunk. You guys are both wrong. And, and often this is used to describe us as humanity trying to figure out what's the right religion. And we're all claiming to have something that's true, but 
but they're also right, and, and we're a little right, and they're a little wrong, and we're a little wrong, and let's all just, nobody fully understands, and so we just all need to be okay with this reality that every religion has got a little piece of truth, but we don't have the full picture, and so all the religions are a little bit right. Maybe someone's a little more right than the other, but let's just say it's okay. Everyone's got their own sense of what's real, and let's let live and let live. Now, now this view would make sense if the elephant doesn't talk. But it doesn't make sense if the elephant speaks. And the rope that is the tail is being tugged upon. It's like, hey, it's a rope. And the elephant turns and goes, no, I'm an elephant. Or the, the, the leg is being held on. It's a trunk. It's a tree trunk. And the elephant says, nope, still an elephant. Oh, it's a wall. No, I'm an elephant. In other words, if there's someone from the outside something from the outside that speaks into the human experience and cuts through the human blindness and is able to give clarity to the real state of things, then it isn't good to just sit here and let everyone believe they're right. Uh, it actually makes sense. If revelation is true, if there is a word from outside of the human experience that speaks of the actual state of reality, then the best thing to do is to listen to what the, that voice is saying. Now, what we have is not an elephant speaking, but Almighty God speaking in His Word. He has revealed Himself. He is a God who speaks. He is a God who shows who He is. And listen to what He says in Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord. He is a speaking God, and this is what He says. The King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. He speaks into the limited perspectives of humanity. And he says, listen, I alone am God. I am the only God. There are no other gods. In fact, he will go to great lengths to describe every other false god as a false god, as an idol without eyes or hands or mouth. The idols can't do anything to save. God is the only true God. The whole point is for God. God to make very clear that there are no other alternatives. No, there's no other viable options. There are not many gods on the shelf of life that you can go and choose which one you like most. Allah is not a viable alternative. Other religions are not valid paths. This is made very clear in all of Scripture, and this is the point that Paul is bringing to the surface here. There's one God. Therefore, every other false system that's praying to something other than the revealed God in Scripture, they're caught in a lie. Therefore, pray. Pray for them. Plead with them. Ask God to unveil His reality to them. Some people maybe had said in response to this, well, yeah, sure, there's one God, but there's many paths to God. Uh, yeah, there's, there's one God, but you know, all the religions are getting a piece of Him, and He's just, you know, we can get to Him many different ways. There's many roads, but we're all kind of going the same direction. But Paul goes on to make sure that's not mistaken here. There's one God, he says. Yes, that's true. Monotheism. It's the biblical worldview. One God. But he goes on even further. He says there's one God and there is 
one mediator between God and men. Paul is making clear, he's going to great lengths to make it clear that salvation is through the one mediator alone. There's one God, the creator and owner of everything, and there's one way to return to him and experience reconciliation to this God, and this is through the mediator, the one mediator, the one man, the man Christ Jesus. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So he's not merely saying there's one God. He's not merely making a claim of monotheism. He's making the claim that there's one way to get back to this God, and it's through Jesus Christ. You say, what's a mediator? Mediator, as you probably know, is there's two parties that are at enmity with one another, and a mediator will come in and help these two parties get along. If you have small children and there's a toy that they both really like, you've probably been a mediator in the past, trying to fix relationships. Now, there's a mediator needed, the Bible teaches, between God and between humanity. God, in His perfect holiness... In his perfect justice, in his perfect goodness, requires all his creation to worship him, to call upon him, to come to him, to believe in him. Because of sin, all humanity has not done this. In fact, the Bible is clear, we have not sought after God. No one seeks after God. No, not one. And because of that, we are sinners. We cannot restore our relation with God because we've sinned against God. And we can't bring ourselves back to God by the works of our own hands. That's the message of the gospel. It starts with this reality that God and humanity are at enmity with one another because of humanity's sin and because of God's holiness. And the message of the gospel is not merely that. It is that God sent a mediator. Someone who would come and stand between God and man, who would fix the relationship, who would come as a perfect sacrifice to pay for the guilt of sinners, who would come in perfect righteousness to give that righteousness to those who believe, who would come to bridge the gap, to bring God and man back together through his shed blood on the cross and in his resurrection. And so now this day, we preach a gospel that humanity can be reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ, the one mediator. He will take your sin and pay for it himself. He will give you his righteousness by faith so that you're not saved by your own works. He will then adopt you. He will accept you totally and completely into his family. But it's all done through the mediator. It's all done through the mediator. There's one God and there's one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. So this is, this is very, very important. What he's getting at here is that, hey, we need to pray. We need to pray for all people because this is the only way they will be saved. God has ordained that salvation is not a room full of doors And any one of these doors will get you to the right place. There is one door. There's one mediator. There's one way. Now, to be even more clear, I remember years ago hearing someone argue. I remember I didn't have enough theological training at this point in my life to be able to know if he was right or wrong, and so I was confused, but it sent me on a journey to try to understand what was being said. I remember someone arguing, well, no, okay, people can be saved through other religions, 
through Jesus, even if they've never heard of Jesus. For example, you're a faithful Hindu, and you're doing all the things that you're supposed to do as a Hindu, and if you're sincere, well, salvation will come through Jesus, even if you've never heard of Jesus, Jesus will still come in and save you because of your sincerity. Or if you're a faithful Muslim, or if you're a faithful Mormon, or, or whatever it is, you might have the wrong gospel, the wrong religion, but Jesus still saves you. Jesus still will come get you. He will go down into your false religion, and he will save you out of that if you're just sincere. You know, this is appealing. Uh, it's almost like we would want to believe this because so badly, don't we want people to be saved? Don't we want to just know that people that we love are going to be with God forever and eternity? As much as we would want that to be true, it's just simply not what the Bible teaches. I'm going to give you four words that describe the kind of faith that is required to save. It must be personal faith, personal you know, in other words, it must be their faith. It, not, it can't be the church's faith or your parents' faith. Uh, the saving faith is personal, but it's not only personal, it's conscious, meaning individuals must actually and consciously embrace Jesus Christ. They don't need to know all the depths of biblical doctrine. They just need to know the basics that there is God who's holy, they are sinners, Christ is the Savior, and they need to cling to Jesus Christ, and they must do that consciously. It must be explicit. That's your other word. It's personal, it's conscious, it's explicit. In other words, they must have faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Not just generically in God or in the goodness of God or the love of God generically, but it must be explicitly in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And lastly, it must be singular. That is, it is to say that Jesus is not just one option that you're accruing of all the different ways you think you can be saved. Yeah, I'll take a little Jesus. I'll take Buddhism. I'll take this and that. Uh, no, it must be Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is not the best mediator. He's the only mediator. And so this is very much what the Bible teaches, and you can get this from Romans 10. You don't have to get there. But in Romans chapter 10, and starting in verse 14, Paul is, is just longing for more people to receive the gospel, to experience salvation. And he begins crafting this argument that if this is true, if, if there's one way people need to hear the gospel, listen to what he says. How then will they call on him? in whom they have not believed? Rhetorical question. See what he's saying? How are they going to call on the him if they've not believed? They can't is the answer. Next question. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? They can't believe on someone they've never heard of. That's his point. Next question. How are they to hear someone without someone preaching? They can't, so someone needs to go. And so he says in verse 15, and how are they to preach unless someone is sent? Someone needs to be sent, which brings him to, the, to say, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. People must go. And this is what he's saying. People must be sent. Why? Because they can't believe. If they don't hear, if no one's sent, they can't be saved unless they hear the gospel. People who have never heard the gospel, unless they hear it and trust Christ, 
repenting of their sins and clinging to Him consciously, personally, explicitly, singularly, Christ alone. If they don't do that, there's no hope for them. Friends, I don't think we get this until we see it kindling in our hearts a fervency. If this is only up here and doesn't translate into the way we pray, I don't know that we've really got it. How sad it is that we could say that this is true, that we actually believe that people are lost, that they are in danger of facing God's wrath, that they have only one hope and it's Christ and we have it, how can we not then at least pray for those people? If we are not praying for those people, do we really get this? Has it really sunk in? Friends, so there's urgency here. My prayer has been as I've prepared for this is that we would sense urgency in the way we pray. Personally and individually, the way you pray for the lost friends or the family members that you have in your own life. But corporately, right, this is the context of this passage. He's teaching Timothy to lead the church in corporate evangelistic prayer. There should be a flavor of evangelistic urgency in our corporate prayers, right? See, to travel to the unreached nations takes time and money and manpower, To talk to the lost friends that you know and your neighbors takes courage and boldness and faith. But what about you just praying for the lost? What does that cost us? I think the very first place, love for God and love of neighbor appears in our lives is in the way we pray. So what do you normally pray for? I hope as an encouragement that we're not guilted into anything here. There are many motivations to pray. You know it's never one of the motivations the Bible gives us. It's guilt. And so if there is in your heart or in your mind a sense of, oh man, I feel convicted. Maybe I need to start praying more. Praise the Lord for His grace. Confess that to Him. And thank Him for His ability to not only change your heart, but then to encourage you to move forward. And then let me challenge you and encourage you and encourage us as a body, as a family, to pray for the lost because we know that there is only one way and it's through Jesus Christ, the one mediator. So there's another reason that he's going to give us to pray. So the first reason is there's, there's only one way to salvation. We need to, we need to let that truth sink in, as uncomfortable as it is. And when we think about the people we love that are not yet saved, it, it makes us ache. It can make us weep, and it should make us ache, and it should make us weep. And there's a second motivation that Paul is going to give us for praying and praying evangelistically. In verse 5, he gives us the first. There's one God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But look at verse 6. He says, who gave himself, referring to Christ, as a ransom for who? For all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles. You might as well substitute nations for that word. All nations. He's a teacher of all nations in faith and truth. You see it in verse 4. 
This God, this God who's described as God our Savior, look at this, verse 4, desires all people to be saved. We are to pray for all people. That's again in verse 1. Our second motivation is this, that salvation is to be offered to all people. Salvation is for all people. Christ came for all people. He was a ransom, it says here, for all. And so we have these two realities. They might function like ballasts in a boat. We have this one truth that we already talked about, the exclusivity of Christ. There is salvation in Him and Him alone. There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. It's through Jesus Christ. There's no other way, so people need to hear this. The other truth that we're seeing here is that truth is, in fact, this reality, this gospel, is for all people. It's not just for us here. And he's telling you need to pray as if it really is for all people because it is for all people. Pray. Because why? This ransom that Christ gave that came to us from heaven is for all. It is exclusive in the sense that salvation is through him and him alone. But there's an inclusivity in this reality. It is for all people. There's no person that we feel that we shouldn't share the gospel with or we shouldn't pray for, or we shouldn't seek to love sacrificially. No one is outside the desire of God when it comes to God's desire for them to be saved. This is an amazing and encouraging reality. Think of Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 6. Jesus himself, he gave himself as a ransom for all. He gave himself. I mean, our prayers ought to have the evangelistic fervency that we are longing for other people to experience this. And in the same way that Jesus left heaven, the glories and comforts of heaven to come, to live a life that would give salvation to those who trust him, that Jesus was active in seeking and saving the lost, so our prayers should be active in seeking out the lost, praying for them, asking that the Lord might save. He voluntarily did this. You see those words? He gave himself. What a savior willingly coming from heaven to redeem his people. There's some people who have talked about the cross being divine child abuse, cosmic child abuse, the father abusing the son on the cross as he made an atonement for sin. But friends, Jesus came voluntarily. It was for the joy set before him to glorify His Father and to redeem His people in eternity past. God the Son knew and He even willingly knew that He would go to redeem His people. And here it says He gave Himself as a ransom. As a ransom. A, a ransom. You, you've probably seen this in movies. A, a ransom. A, a amount of money paid to redeem someone or to save someone, to rescue someone out of a bad situation. It has the idea of payment being made. That's what a ransom is. It's a payment. And the imagery that comes to mind as you think about what a ransom is, is this. It's that every sin that you commit and I commit and people commit is like incurring a debt, uh, owing something. So you sin in your mind and you owe. You owe a debt. You sin in your heart. You owe a debt. You sin in your words. There's a debt. There's, there's maybe sins of omission, not doing things you know you're supposed to do, and there's this debt that's incurring, and the Bible teaches that this debt is so large that you can't pay it back. 
In fact, if you were to start this day to do all you could to pay back God for the sins that you've committed, you would not in all eternity be able to pay him back. The works of your hand couldn't pay him back. If you even this moment stopped sinning, the, the previous sins in your past would be an unpayable debt. We all owe so much. And here is the good news is that Christ comes and that word ransom is saying that Christ came to pay the debts of your sin. That all the things you couldn't do with your own hands and all the efforts you could have made would have never paid the debt, but Christ takes your debt. So I'll take that debt and I'll go to the cross and I'll pay your debt. You deserve to be punished for your sins, but I'm going to be punished in your place. In all that is mine, all the blessings and the riches of the glorious Son of God that are mine are then freely given to those who believe. This is amazing that God has done this through His Son. Jesus came to offer Himself as a ransom. Have you ever felt that you owe a debt to God? Sometimes we feel that we owe a debt to God and so it drives us crazy. We're trying to pay Him back for something. And oftentimes we do a lot of good things trying to pay him back. We'll show up to church more frequently. We'll give maybe a little more generously. We'll be a little nicer to people around. And maybe everyone else pats us on the back, approving us of all the good things that we're doing. And maybe all that we're really trying to do is pay something back to God. As if we could somehow do enough and earn enough to make God really love us. Maybe we think that, yeah, salvation is a gift, but man, I want to go back and earn that gift. But not if this is true. He is a ransom, which means in His death, He paid your debt in full. You don't pay for anything anymore. You don't have anything to pay anymore. You don't have to pay for your sins anymore. All the guilt has been removed. It's completely done. This is a beautiful reality, and all of us ought to rejoice that now we're free from the debt of our sin. And not only us, listen to this, this is not only for us, it is for all people, this ransom. It's the offer to the whole world is, is what it's saying here. The free gift of eternal life, this ransom of the payment for sins is offered to the whole world. And let me just say, if you haven't experienced the forgiveness of your sins and the payment of your debt, uh, the sins that you've committed and the debt that you've accrued over all the years of your life, you can just by faith alone trust Christ to be your ransom. And the moment you do, you're free and forgiven and cleansed, and adopted. This ransom came to the world for all. And if you have enjoyed it, now, like Paul would say, we are under obligation to bring this message to those who don't yet have it. It is for all the world. He, God desires all to be saved Christianity is not a village religion because God is not a village God. All creation is His. All nations are His. All people are in His hand. He is the owner of all the universe, the governor of all things, and the Lord desires worship from all nations. We don't worship a small God that only cares about this little congregation here. The ransom came for all. And so it is our obligation to imitate our God and to imitate our Savior in the way we pray. 
Listen to how God speaks of his desire to have all nations come to know him. Listen to this. There's some passages in Isaiah when you find them. Just, they're, they're amazing. Isaiah 45 verse 21. There's no other God but me. A righteous God and Savior. There is none except me. And then listen to this. Turn to me and be saved, God says. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you, he's speaking to Israel, light to the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Verse 26, all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior. 51, verse 4, I will set my justice as a light to the nations. 52, verse 10, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And then you get to Isaiah 55, verse 1. And it's almost as if this God, this omnipotent God, is pleading with people. Listen to this. Come, he says. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. God pleads with all nations to come to know Him, to turn to Him, the ends of the earth to be saved by Him. He desires all people to be saved, all nations to find their delight in Him. The amazing thing about this is that if you read the end of the book, Revelation, you see that God redeems for Himself, right? People from every tongue, tribe, and nation. What God desires is all the earth to recognize his glory. And he accomplishes that through the death and resurrection of the one mediator, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. That's the end of the story. The redeemed, the countless redeemed at the throne of the Son, worshiping throughout all eternity. But friends, that's the picture then, and it is not the picture now right? We're not there. Literally, there are nations and tribes and people groups who don't have any access to the gospel. The statistics say that 2.2 billion people on planet earth live in a place where there is no access to the gospel. Even if you wanted to find out something about Jesus and you lived in one of these places, you couldn't travel far enough to find a place around you. Without the gospel, friends, let's face what the Bible teaches. These people perish. And as Paul makes in the argument in Romans 10, how will they know? How can they believe? The answer is, someone's got to be sent. People have to go. And the point of Paul's passage here is probably before we ever send someone to the unreached people groups or to the places where there is a great need of gospel witness, probably before that ever happens, the church prays that those things would happen. There's one God, there's one mediator. He gave himself as a ransom for all. This is theological fuel to drive the way we pray. And so the way we pray must be big, 
far-reaching, for neighbors and for nations, that the gospel would go places we would never be able to set foot, that our prayers would go places that we would never travel in our lifetimes. We must pray this way as a church. We thought about this last week when we looked at the first section of this, but I do hope that these last two weeks really do begin to shape our corporate prayers. In fact, I'm intending to, in the future, make a list of all the different things we can be praying for and be praying for them as a church family regularly so we make sure that we're praying for greater needs outside of these walls. So the answer to the question, well, how will people know? That's our third point. Third, we pray. Here's a third motivation to pray. We pray because we have been appointed to bring the gospel to the nations. Paul says that about himself individually. He says in verse 7, for this I was appointed. What's the this? It's the testimony given at the proper time. What's the testimony given at the proper time? It's the reality that there is one God, one mediator, one ransom for all men. This is the truth of the gospel. There's one way to be saved, so there's only one door, but that door should be offered to every person on the planet, every nation. And so because these two realities are true, this is the true testimony. And this, Paul says, verse 7, is why he was appointed a preacher. He's going to go. He's an apostle. That's a sent one. It's almost as if he can't believe it. He says, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles, or we could say a teacher of the nations in faith and in truth. Paul saw himself to be one who was sent to all nations. You read in his epistles that this is how he thought. This is how he prayed. And we see also that this heartbeat for the gospel to go beyond just the area that we're in to the nations that have not heard it yet, this heartbeat is to characterize the church. You guys remember the Great Commission? Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go to all nations. The church has to have the same heartbeat. And if we're not yet sending people, I pray, Lord willing, someday we are, We have missionaries that we support and we pray for them and want to continue doing that. But if we're not yet sending people, oh, we better be praying for them. We better be praying for these people, praying for doors to be open, praying for opportunities to be seized, praying for the gospel to go places we could never go. And so the summary of this passage might be this. There's one way. Apart from this one way, people are lost. God desires all these people to be saved. Therefore, pray, pray, pray for kings and authorities. Pray for all peoples. Pray for all nations. God desires all people to be saved. The gospel is a ransom for all people, and therefore pray. These truths, these doctrines, when they go deep into our soul, are highly potent. They can change us. These truths have claws. They can grab a hold of you and they can alter the way you pray. They can shape you into a prayer warrior, into a global-minded Christian. I think of people who have been models of this in the past. A.B. Simpson, founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, was said to wake up in the morning, bow to his knees, hold a globe, and weep in prayer. 
John Knox famously prayed, give me Scotland or I die. George Whitfield cried out, oh Lord, give me the souls or take my soul. I pray that we would have a growing and increasing evangelistic zeal that erupts in the way we pray. We're called to this. We must accept the gut-wrenching reality of the lostness of souls. We must believe in the soul-stirring beauty of the gospel and the reality that it is for all peoples. And then we must take it upon ourselves a corporate responsibility to pray evangelistically. We will do this as a church. Lord willing, we'll do this in small groups, in one-on-one meetings, and Lord willing, as individuals. This is Christ's plan of redemption that we are privileged to participate in. May our prayers be shaped by these truths. And would you join me now in prayer? So, Father, you are not a village God with only village concerns. Lord, it is your desire that all nations come to know and worship you, that all ends of the earth would turn to you and be saved. Christ came as a ransom to pay sin's penalty. The ransom is offered for all people. So, Lord, there is one way, but this one way is to be made available to all nations. And as small and seemingly insignificant as we are, we ask to be a part of your plan of redemption, that you would hear our prayers, that you would answer them. And Lord, even if that we do not see answered prayers, we would by faith believe that you are a loving Father who answers them. And if all we know is that in eternity we'll see the fruit of our prayers, may we continue praying. And so, Lord, we ask to be shaped by your word. Forgive us of spiritual lethargy. Forgive us for self-centeredness. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who has promised to shape us. And thank you for the certainty that those who are in Christ will be taken home to glory. We ask now out of our gratefulness that you would make us prayer warriors for the lost because there's one way and there's one mediator and it's Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.